Welcome to High Energy Health, where together we explore the leading edge of wellness and happiness. I'm your host, Dawson Church. By choosing this time together, you're declaring your commitment to a positive mindset, elevated emotions, and a great life. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. Sciences, and before joining the Reddick Sciences, he held appointments at AT&T Bell Labs, Princeton, University of Edinburgh, and SRI International. He's the author or co-author of over 250 peer-reviewed and popular articles, several dozen book chapters, and his latest book is called Super Normal. Dean, it is such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Dawson. I'm glad to be here. I asked Dean to be on the show because... He knows so much about how things work in the realm of physics, not just the realm of physics as we know it, but also the realm of physics as it's imagined and as it might be. And what I wanted to begin with was share the psychological component of how we go from thinking about something, that thing being there in material reality. Now, many of you are familiar with the idea of the law of attraction and the idea that thoughts become things. We have thoughts. They then take shape in material reality. And what I'm really fascinated by now are the processes, both in biology and physics, by which this occurs. We understand pretty well how this works psychologically. So if I'm focused on something, if I'm thinking about something, then I develop the neural pathways that carry the information in my brain. Just a simple example is, say, I am an aficionado of classical music. I listen to classical music. I develop a skill and interpreting classical music, I'm building neural capacity around that skill, and I become aware of finer and finer gradations of the nuances of that music. I remember listening to a program, a radio program once, by a very well-known radio host in the classical music sphere. He listened to a new recording he never heard before, and he said, you know, I think, listening to that, I think that the pianist was conducting the orchestra from the piano. Now, I was awed that he could, he was right, <laughs> I was awed that he could identify enough nuances in the performance to realize that. That's the advantage of having built those neural circuits to have those perceptions finally developed. If you talk to a winophile, they will tell you a lot about wine. There are men I know in my gym who will tell you every single detail of every player in the National Football League in their performance, and they've just developed the neural capacity to perceive these things, and they'll see nuances in a football game that I won't see. So we tend to develop these abilities by sending those signals along neural pathways over and over and over again, and we know through neurogenesis that increases the number of synaptic connections there, so we're then more likely to see that thing after a while. So we know that thoughts become things in the terms of shaping our brains. And so, Dean, what I would love to hear your take on is, where does it go past that? Where does it go into the realm of material manifestation outside of our bodies and outside of our brains from that point on? Okay, so in order to answer that question, we need to consider what 
we think reality is, and this is reality with a big R. So in physics, that's kind of the domain of physics. It's studying the nature, at least, of material reality. Most people would say that reality is what you see. It's It's the world out there, and it's hard to deny that because it seems pretty solid, and you have to move your body from here to there in order to get places. But what science has taught us over the past couple of centuries is that common sense, which is the everyday world we all move around in, common sense is a thin slide of reality. And it's in slice because we know that our eyes only see a certain narrow band of the electromagnetic spectrum, and we we know that we, we live on a, a, a sphere in space, and so our weight is determined by the size of the planet, and all, all of these scientific facts tell us that common sense is a very poor way of imagining what reality is like. And this is particularly seen not only with telescopes, but especially with microscopes, because when you start getting beyond the range of the ordinary senses, the, the behavior of the microscopic world is very different once you get down far enough. So if we get down into the elementary particle domain, now we're talking about things like electrons and photons and atoms and so on. At that level, the behavior of, of what we normally think of as matter and energy is extremely different than what our common senses are telling us. So since science kind of sit on, uh, on physics as the, the base on which uh, the rest of the science is stacked upon, then what does physics tell us about the, the deep nature of physical reality? For that, we need to go to quantum mechanics. And within quantum mechanics, there are a number of very strange puzzles and mysteries that have yet to be figured out. And for our purposes right now, the most important one is that when you get down into a very small world of elementary particles, taking a measurement of how something like an electron behaves becomes much more difficult than taking a ruler and measuring your height. And this is because at these extremely small levels of physical reality, it turns out to not be possible to measure something without influencing it. And this is not simply a matter of a ruler being too big, because you could have a ruler the size of an electron, it would still not be possible to measure an electron without influencing it. This is known as the quantum measurement problem. And the problem arises because from a quantum perspective, you can think of everything, including up at the, the level of everyday reality, everything is actually constructed mathematically out of wave-like structures, like almost like water waves, but not, not exactly like a water wave. But wave-like structures have this curious property that uh, they can interfere with each other. Just like when you throw a pebble into a pond, you see ripples that interfere with each other. Well, something like that is happening at, the, at a deep physical level as well. And so if you use a quantum mechanical description to describe how the physical world works, and, and that is thought, physicists do think that quantum mechanics pertains to everything, including the everyday world. It's just that it's very difficult to see that with your naked eye, uh, but nevertheless, it's still quantum mechanical. So the, the mystery of quantum measurement is this. If you imagine that the best description that we have of a physical system is a set of complex waves that interfere with each other, and now uh, let's say we're, we're measuring a photon, particle of light, we could do that with a photo detector, which would send a signal when it, it sees a particle of light, and then that can go to a counter circuit, and then that could you could look at that with your eye, and then your eye would send signals to the brain. This entire sequence, this chain of measurement, all consists of physical objects. And all, as I said before, all physical objects are basically considered to be waves. So when you look out at the world, we don't see waves, especially waves of probability, which is what quantum mechanical waves are like. What we see are objects. You see particles. So if I'm looking at a photon, how do I see it as a separate little object rather than a wave spread out through space-time? And that's the mystery. How, what turns this 
quantum potential wave-like description of reality into the physical world as we experience it. What turns waves into particles? So this has been, this question has been analyzed for many years and uh, one of the more detailed analyses was by the, the uh, mathematician John von Neumann who in 1932 published what amounts to the mathematical bible of orthodox quantum mechanics. This is still used today as the, the essence of quantum mechanics from a mathematical sense. So von Neumann analyzed this measurement problem and he decided that the only way that you could transition from the quantum wave-like potential world into the everyday world of particles is if something extra physical intervened. Something extra physical has to break the chain of measurement. So by extra physical, he explicitly meant consciousness. So consciousness, if it's not a physical thing, is required in order to break this chain of measurement from a quantum world to turn it into a classical world. Well, if that is true, and not only von Neumann, but many of the founders of quantum mechanics were thinking along similar lines, that there's something peculiar about consciousness that it interacts with the physical world in some way, some important way. So you can do experiments. You can do an experiment where you set up a, a system that is behaving in a quantum mechanical way, and you ask people not to look at the system with their eye, but to look at it with their mind's eye. And the reason you do that is because you want to see whether there is, in fact, a relationship between consciousness itself, meaning awareness, which is supposedly non-physical, or possibly non-physical, does that interact with a physical system? So we've been doing this now for eight years, an experiment where we use a very simple quantum optic setup, where you take a photon and you send it through two little slits, and then when you see what happens when the photon comes out of the slits, it turns out it creates a wave-like interference pattern, but only if you don't know which slit the photon went through. The moment that you know which of the two slits the photon goes through, now you begin to see part particle-like behavior. So this is a way of, and, and this is like a physics 101 experiment. It's been done thousands of times, and we know that the moment you can tell which of the two slits the photon goes through, then you start seeing particle behavior. And if you don't know or if you can't tell, then you see wave-like behavior. So we ask... So your perception by itself is appearing then to influence whether it is behaving as a particle or a wave. Exactly. It's not only perception, but it's actually your knowledge, the knowledge of where the photon went. And in physics jargon, it's called which path information. If you can tell which path the photon took through the slit on the left or the slit on the right, then you will only see particles. And the moment that you cannot tell which split it goes through, then you'll only see waves. So this is the this is where the idea of uh, a wave-particle duality comes from in quantum mechanics, where behavior of elementary particles depend on what you know about them or what you can observe about them. Our experiments, we've been running experiments for eight years using this design, and we've conducted 18 experiments so far. To make a long story short, if you ask people to mentally imagine that they could see the photons going through the double slit, then the wave-like behavior begins to go away, and you actually start to see particle-like behavior. And this is without your eye. This is purely with your mind. And the implication of all this is that when you cast your attention, consciousness attention, toward an object, it changes its behavior. We see this in the laboratory because we're using extremely sensitive equipment. We're able to measure what happens when you direct your mind towards something. But the, the laboratory is an artificial environment. It, it, the effect that we see 
in the lab must be also true outside of the lab. So when you direct your attention towards something, whether it's nearby or at a distance, it actually affects its behavior directly. So I think when we talk about things like affirmations and so on, that underneath that concept that your intention and that tension can cause events to occur, there actually is some science now showing that that basic idea is, is correct. That doesn't necessarily mean that if you wish for a bag of gold to appear suddenly in your living room, well, that may not happen. In principle, it might happen because we, we know that attention can push the physical world around, but size of the effect that we see in the laboratory is very small. So either an enormous amount of intention over an enormous amount of time or somebody who's incredibly talented might be able to do something like the gold trick. But for most people, most of the time, these effects are quite small but real. So you'd imagine then that there'd be people who would be better intenders, better manifestors, better affirmers than others, and it might be a talent that some have. And, and you know, we see this in the in the actual world, like in business, they talk about people with a Midas touch or people with a, in, in, in gardening, people with a green thumb. There are people who seem to effortlessly be able to manifest things in certain dimensions. And funnily enough, often not in other areas of their lives as well. So uh, they may be really good at, at, at uh, I talked to one guy, for example, who's a pretty brilliant entrepreneur and um, had made uh, an enormous amount of money on in his company, but had a tale of woe in his five failed marriages. And so he was able to, to intend and create in brilliant ways in, in one dimension, not in others. And I imagine that there are, then you do find that there are some people who, when you hook them up, when you measure the effects of their intention, that you do see big effects. Other people, maybe because of lack of focus, lack of training, lack of innate ability, might have much less facility in that regard. That is correct. So in this domain, even without thinking of this in exotic terms, uh, people are very different in terms of, of their natural abilities. And not everybody gets to go to the Olympics, no, no matter how much they try. If you don't start with some kind of talent, then you can't do it. So most of the experiments that we do and, and that our colleagues have done have, have used people who don't make special claims. We recruit people sometimes because they're meditators, even though they, they don't know if they're better at these tasks than somebody else. But we, can, we use meditators because they're able to follow instructions having to do with mental intention better than people who are not meditators. And in fact, the results of experiments show that meditators tend to do better. I think simply because they're able to attend. They have attention training. But when it comes to real talent, the way we do it in the laboratory is we very rarely will go out looking for people who call themselves psychics or have special abilities. Rather, what we do is we run lots of people in an experiment, and then we select people who did well on that experiment. So they have a, between a minor and a major talent for that particular experiment. So when we run it again, we and they have some confidence that they're actually able to do it. When you do that kind of, of strategy, you actually can get pretty good results. And do you believe that kind of talent can be learned? This, of course, is a question that, that comes up all the time, and I think the answer is that it can be learned uh, insofar as you can learn tips and tricks, but that doesn't modulate your talent. So what I mean is that uh, anybody can learn how to play tennis, but only people who have exceptional talent can learn to play tennis at a very high level. So that means you could take someone who knows nothing about tennis, and they actually don't even know what the game is about, and you can train them. You can tell them it's, it's better to hold the, the short end of the stick and hit with the net, you know, the big end, that would be much better than if you try to hold the big end and hit with the stick. So there's a tip that would vastly improve performance that most people get right away. And there are other tips like that. And the same is true here, that there are ways of using attention and intention that would make the effect of it much more efficient, but not necessarily improve one's talent. Now, 
how do we relate this to the kinds of intentions that most people have in ordinary life? And just for shorthand, I tend to divide those intentions into five categories because when we do psychological testing with people in our live workshops, we find that they tend to do well in one of these five categories. They tend to struggle in one of the other five. And so I divide them up into work and career, into health, into money, into relationships, and into spirituality. And again, those are definitive categories. For those, those broad categories summarize most domains of most people's lives. And so, so people tend to want certain things in each of those domains. And so if we just picture now, Dean, a, a person like my friend, for example, who is, has a Midas touch and built this amazing business, built as a pioneer, built from scratch, built with nothing to begin with, except his belief it was possible. He was using actually a very esoteric kind of technology. He made that technology mainstream, turned millions of people onto it, went from direct mail, being very successful in direct mail, made the bridge to online sales and online delivery. This product did all of those things so well, and yet when it comes to certain other parts of his life, all of those manifestational skills that served him so well in his business, in creating his product, in making that enormous lead from direct mail marketing to online marketing. So he was able in the financial realm, the business realm, to excel, and it went truly from an idea in his mind to a multi-million dollar empire. But then when he intends, for example, in the relationship sphere, his intentions seem then to fail every time. And that's one of the, these, these huge conundrums I think most of us have, is most of us do have success in some areas of our lives, and then not in others. And so it's not a given that that, 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 that ability will be, be transferable even if you can learn it in one in one sphere. So how we then take these kinds of, of, of learnings and then start to apply them to those parts of our lives that um, we're perhaps struggling with, we aren't as good with, uh, don't come as easy to us. The ability of the mind and intention to influence physical matter. So literally, the act of observing physical matter changes it. And so it's very hard to measure those quantum effects at that level because just the act of observation changes the behavior of that level of matter. So that presents a huge problem. We also talked about how some people have more of an ability to do this than others. And we then got into the question of can you train yourself? And now we're going to look in this segment about the whole question of how you apply this to different parts of your life in a practical sense. So perhaps you're doing really well in the financial realm but struggling in relationships. Maybe you're doing great in the sense of your health, but you can't seem to make a connection in your career. Maybe you have a wonderful relationship. Maybe you just have a natural affinity for creating great interpersonal relationships with all those around you, and yet your health continues to trouble you. So many of us have one or more of those five areas we would love to see better in our lives. And so we'll talk in the next couple of segments about how to move these discoveries that mind, intention, and affirmation literally change matter into how we apply this, apply this in useful ways in our own lives. So Dean, you mentioned meditation earlier, and the meditators tended to be better at doing this than others. How else can we get become better affirmers, better materializers, better intenders than we might otherwise be? Well, before the break, you were mentioning an individual who made very good business sense and, and money, but his personal life wasn't doing so well. And this is a pretty common story. And I think the, the answer is relatively straightforward, that what you put your full attention and your full intention, that tends to happen. It, it pushes the world around so that your uh, your intention manifests in some way. Uh, in order to do that, though, because attention is limited, it, we can't have attention on everything 
at the same degree, that in order to create a very successful business, you spend an enormous amount of time and energy and attention on that on that thing, on, on this case in business. And as a result, personal relationships can, can suffer. So the, the opposite is also true. You can spend an enormous amount of, of attention on relationships, and in the meantime, your business is going, is going in the basket because you're not paying enough attention there. So this is a general problem in that because we can't pay the same amount of attention to everything, we have to pick and choose what we're going to do. Sometimes the problem is called about uh, living a balanced life. Like you're at work, you focus completely on work. You go home, you focus completely on your home life, and you have focus on your health and so on. It's not easy to do that. It's, in fact, it's very difficult for someone who's very focused on making a lot of money to drop that because, in a sense, it's like a 24-7 problem that you, you're always having other people who are trying to stop you from making money, and so you have to you really have to focus on it a lot. So the thing that I found that, that works for me is that attention is important, but what's almost equally important is not simply just spending a lot of time thinking about something, but being extremely clear about what it is that you want to happen. So it, before I was talking about we do experiments in the lab where we're, we're able to essentially show that attention and intention help to manifest the world the way that we see it. In the lab, I said we see very small effects, but it probably scales up in the real world, world because the real world has very high motivations to get certain things done. So what works for me in the real world, and I know for other people as well, is not simply attention, but clarity of attention and clarity of intention. I want a certain thing to happen, and I need to visualize it as clearly as I possibly can in, in all respects, not just what I want to occur, but when. I may not know how. In fact, I don't care how, usually, but I care about when, and I care about what the outcome is. And so from a theoretical perspective, I think what's happening, and I don't know this for sure, but I think what's happening is that, that attention and intention are not actually located in space-time, that at least not to the extent that we normally think of, of causal effect, cause and effect. This is something that is actually happening outside of space-time. And that means that if you have a very clear intention, you put your attention on this clear intention, in a sense you're placing it in the future and you're allowing that future to, you, you want to start approaching that future. You want to navigate yourself towards that particular future. The clearer it is, the clearer that goal, the more likely you are to achieve it. And even from a, a very simplistic perspective, it's often said that if, if you don't have a goal that you want to reach in the future, well, what are you doing now? You're just going to flail about and go randomly in all kinds of different directions. Whereas if you have a very clear goal in mind, and by the way, you can have many clear goals. You don't just need one. But if you set the goals and you, you maybe you write them down or you remind yourself every day of what those goals are, then you're much more likely to start navigating in, in from the decisions that you make and things that might happen coincidentally out there in the world, you will be solely gravitating towards those outcomes. So this sounds kind of metaphysical, but we've we've conducted experiments that suggest that something like that actually does occur at, at very deep levels of the physical world, and I think that they probably scale up into the everyday world as well. Now, I'm not the part of what you're saying that I'm not getting is how this happens outside of space-time. What exactly do you mean by that? Well, quantum phenomena, like quantum entanglement, the, the strange thing about all of these quantum effects is that they're not located inside space-time. They don't occur according to the, the flow of time that your watch is telling us, and they don't occur in the in the, the absolute space. When you look around yourself, it looks like space is there. It's a thing. But quantum phenomena do not take place inside time or inside space. They take place outside 
Well, it's hard to imagine what that even means because all of our common sense is telling us we're inside space-time, space and time are like here, but that is not the case. And the reason we know that is because we can do experiments where things seem to move backwards in time, things work across space in ways that don't make sense in a classical perspective, but that's simply the way it is, and that's why quantum mechanics seems so strange. We've been talking about the whole concept of thought to things, how our thoughts, our intentions, our desires, our affirmations wind up translating themselves into material reality. We're talking about the whole concept of attention and intention happening outside of space-time. And Dean, I'd love to have you go deeper into that concept so that people who grapple with that and struggle a little bit with that, like me, can get clarity on how that happens. Okay. I, I don't want to pretend that I actually understand how this works. What I can pretend, do... Dean, please do. <laughs> yeah. Pull the love of my eyes. <laughs> what, what I can do is is give uh, some descriptions of how we do experiments and the implications of them. Let's say you you have a dream about something and some event that's going to take place in the future. It feels like it's, it hasn't occurred yet. It's in the future. And then the next day happens and then the event unfolds. So we call that a precognitive dream. And there are many examples of this. In fact, precognition is the most common psychically reported thing that happens. You dream about something and it comes true. Of course, it's only really impressive if, if it's something that was unexpected. Obviously, if you're, you have a dream about a meeting you're going to have the next day and you knew you are going to have a meeting, that's not very impressive. So these are things that are not predicted that come to pass and you dreamt about it. So in the laboratory, you can study these in a more carefully controlled manner. Uh, one of the methods that, that I developed about 20 years ago is that you, you sit somebody down in front of a computer screen and you wire them up to measure an aspect of their physiology, like their brain waves or the size of their pupil and their eye or skin conductance or some other measure. All of these are nice ways of recording what is happening below the level of awareness because your body will reflect your unconscious mind. So while you're wired up, you present a picture and then 30 seconds later you present another picture and the pictures are selected randomly from a large pool of pictures, some of which are very emotional and some of which are very calm. And so if your future response influences your present condition, then we can predict that just before you see an emotional picture, your body should already be showing signs of stress. Just before a calm picture, your body will be remaining calm. So I call this a presentiment experiment, a pre-feeling experiment, as opposed to precognition, because precognition, the word cognition, suggests that you know what's about to happen. So in these experiments, you don't know what's about to happen other than you're going to see a picture, and we're looking at how you feel about it in your body. So this sort of experiment uh, generally, the person might see 30 or 40 pictures in a row. Each time they're selected randomly and using a true random process so that nobody knows in advance what the sequence of pictures is going to be. When you analyze the data later, you can you actually will see that uh, depending on the physiological system that you're measuring, somewhere between one second and ten seconds before the picture shows up on the screen, your body is already becoming more emotional before an emotional picture and remaining calm before a calm picture. So this is a way of demonstrating precognition or presentiment for things in the future that you cannot infer. In order for that to be true, it means that something about your future experience must be rippling backwards in time in order to affect you in the present. So if we allow for a retrocausation or retroaction, as it's called in physics, that means that something, some sort of, and I hesitate to use this word because it's not completely correct, but some sort of signal must be coming backwards in time. Well, that's one way of thinking of it. That's now requiring a backward flow of time. 
Another way, though, of thinking of it is that the, your future is affecting your present directly, but it's not exactly in time. It's not like a river suddenly reversing course and going backwards, but it's like jumping out of the river, going into some other dimension and coming back into the present. And, and again, we don't completely understand how these effects work, although there are some theories in physics why it works. Uh, but the, the fact is that from a, a purely experimental point of view, you can demonstrate these kinds of retroactive effects in time. And there's similar things that you can demonstrate that span space. Like, you know, your eyes can see a mile or two, but you can do experiments showing that your your perception, your mind, can actually see things thousands of miles away. Or maybe right next to you, but inside an envelope that you can't see what's... Our, our mind, our consciousness, is able to span space and span time in ways that suggest that there, there's some aspect of consciousness which is actually not not locked into ordinary space-time. I mean, our, our ordinary senses are certainly locked into space-time. That's why common sense tells us that the world looks very stable and my the, the watch that I'm wearing keeps ticking forward. But when it comes to these consciousness phenomena, this is no longer the case. When I said before that you create a very clear image of a goal that you wish to achieve, it's almost as though you're actually setting it in the future. And now you allow that future to influence your behavior in the present. We've actually conducted experiments to see if that idea has any merit in a controlled environment, in a laboratory, and it turns out that it does. You can do experiments where you record data in the present, but you try to influence it from the future. I mean, obviously, you influence it when you get to the future, and, and at that point, you see that the data that you recorded in the present conforms to what you were doing in the future. So, that it, I mean, this is hard to, hard to make it more clear because uh, the language needed to talk about this is going to be outside the usual language which is intenses, right? We use words that indicate the temporal order of things, causal effects, like cause and effect. But the moment you start thinking about effects and causes reversed in time, it's very difficult to talk about. So that's why I would simply say that you, you set a goal, the goal is in the future, and somehow that future influences you now. And by the way, in the next segment, I can say why in physics, this is not considered such a strange idea. Okay, I'd love to hear that. And let me tell, just read one story, and uh, just thinking I happened to get this email from a colleague of mine today. So here is a lady who had a dream, and her dream was that she had cancer, and she had breast cancer, and the dream was a ledge, and she dreamed that there was a tumor hidden under the ledge. She went to her doctor immediately. The doctor inserted the a biopsy needle into that, that part of her breast, and they found that there was a fast-moving extremely aggressive breast cancer whose cells weren't massing in any kind of normal way would ever been allowed them to, to, to show up on a mammogram. So she sensed that. She went into the doctor. The doctor did the biopsy on faith, and it turned out to be this rare, fast-growing cancer. There are many examples, stories like that, of people having what, those, what you think of as those presentiments. And we've been talking about the whole concept of consciousness affecting what we think of as external physical matter. And during the break, Dean was chatting with me about the whole concept in physics of, take a deep breath on this one, retro-causation, retro-causation, and he was saying that there have been three seminars held by the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the AAAS, on this topic. So, Gene, go ahead and just discover that concept, what it is, and how we can both understand it and then perhaps apply it practically. Okay, so we have uh, two major theories of, of how the physical world works, the mathematics of classical physics and the mathematics of quantum mechanics. In both cases, 
movement of time is actually not in the equations very well. I mean, you can make equations that have time in them, but the basic equations say that when you look carefully at something, you actually can't tell if it's moving forward in time or if it's moving backwards in time. So one way to think of this is, let's say you, you're you looking at a movement of particles in a cloud, and you have a, a microscope watching it, and it's in a movie format. Well, if you track one, one cloud particle at a time, in this movie, and you, you, by looking at that particle, just that one particle, and the movie was playing forward, you see a certain movement. But if the movement is, if the movie is played backwards, you see another movement, and you cannot tell simply by looking at the behavior of that particle whether it's forward in time or backwards in time. So th- this is why, again, the behavior of the elementary particle world is very strange. It doesn't appear to have any obvious way of telling whether something is forward or backwards in time. That's why the notion of precognition is not unthinkable within physics because it requires that some strange aspect of the world appears to be moving backwards in time, but it's only because our sense of the forward direction of time is due to the mechanics of the way that our eyes and our brain are put together. We we imagine, our memory helps us imagine that time only goes in one direction, and it's certainly possible, and our experiments suggest that time doesn't always go in one direction. There are ways in which things can happen backwards in time. So this goes back then to to, uh, to the idea of time symmetry. In, in physics, we'd, we'd say that uh, just like if you have a mirror set up, you see a symmetry, right? You know what you look like, you know what your image looks like. They're symmetric. They, they bounce off of the mirror itself. Well, something like that seems to take place in time as well. You have an event occur, and you know what it's like after the event. Well, there seems to be something like an echo beforehand, which is similar in many ways to the ev- event afterwards. That's what we see in our experiments, and that would then be a time-symmetric outcome. Normally, you don't pay any attention to that, except perhaps maybe that when somebody has a deja vu of a a feeling like they're experiencing something as though they've already experienced it before, it's possible that that is something like a symmetric effect in time. And again, some people have it more often than others, but most people have had at least one deja vu to give them a sense, like a felt sense of what that means. So all of this is in the context of of how do you set a future goal? Well, you, you simply say, next Tuesday, I want this to happen, and you're very clear about that. So that is setting a goal in the future. The, the claim that I'm making is, and based on what we see in the laboratory, is that if you're very clear about that goal in the future, it is much more likely to take place, partially for just psychological reasons, because your attention then allows you to make choices that will lead you towards that goal, but it's actually more than that. But there's something about the setting of the goal in the future itself that seems to then pull you toward that outcome. You know, Dean, on a personal level, my wife, Christine, and I are very careful about what we think about and goals we set because it's almost spooky how they materialize. We'll decide that we want something and just synchronistically then often within hours or certainly days, highly unlikely things start to occur to bring it bring it to, to pass. And so we now begin to actually track these. We have a big, in our personal journal, we have a big S in a circle. We write for synchronicity because we'll have a certain desire, a certain goal, and then just synchronously things will start to happen and it, it's almost spooky they, they until we had that goal we never even had the desire that thing there's never any thought of that thing happening once we nail the desire though once we have the goal uh, all kinds of events seem to then set it, be set in motion and then we almost don't have to do anything that those things begin to manifest so we've now begun to pay attention to them because it, it happens so often we we're letting them just flow like water under the bridge now we're saying hey let's let's put a little marker in our, our, our personal journal when these happen because they they're, they're so so amazing, and it happens so often. And uh, and 
some of them are very trivial, by the way. Not, they're not all, these aren't necessarily life-changing events. They're often very, very, very trivial events, but we've begun to sensitize ourselves to them, ourselves to them because they are, are so frequent. And mm-hmm. again, what you were saying was that what you pay attention to will, that you'll then develop expertise in. And so we'd, we'd love to see if, if, if they begin to multiply as we start to record them. Right. And there's, so all of this raises a, a, a caution. And the caution is to be careful what you wish for because sometimes people make frivolous goals that maybe they're not so interested in. In the recent case is the Brexit vote in Britain to exit the United Kingdom, or uh, sorry, the, the European Union. And so after the vote happened, and in fact Britain did, or at least England voted to exit the European Union, a lot of people are saying, oh, we didn't really mean that. We were just doing our vote as a protest. Well, too bad. They, they now have the vote. So the, the same thing is similar in, in the case of setting personal goals. So you have to be careful about what it is that you wish to manifest, because it might. In fact, if you put a lot of attention on it, it's more likely to occur, as you've mentioned already. The other caution is that we're talking here about consciously setting goals, and we know that some aspect of most people is self-defeating. A lot of people, a lot of people have trouble uh, imagining that they should have good things happen to them because they have this, this superstition that maybe something bad will happen if that, that occurs. So there's a certain degree of a self-defeating behavior in a lot of people, and so you have to be very careful about about how you set goals. Right. Yeah, that is a, a good caution and well worth remembering. Dean, I would love to have you back to take this to the next level because this has been an amazing conversation and has also raised more questions than it's answered. Thank you so much for your brilliant insights. And again, Dean's latest book is called Super Normal. You can see more about him and his work at deanradin.com and more information and links to Dean's work and others.